Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know where I heard this story, but uh, a story I read it somewhere and I can't find it now. But it was told of of a missionary in Africa who was going from village to village sharing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so he would go from this village and he would proclaim the gospel boldly, but there was no reception. And then he would go to the next village and he would find he would preach it more boldly. In each uh, instance, he would become more bold and more uh, loud and, and bold about the gospel and yet found more and more rejection. Until finally, after visiting a village and and proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and being rejected, he went outside of the village and found a tree and fell asleep. It was when the villagers came out and found his feet bloodied from the miles that he had walked between villages and his hands marked with calluses from his walking stick that he had carried with him. And himself so exhausted that he was there uh, replenishing himself underneath the, the tree outside the village that they woke him and invited him back to the village to share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the truth is this morning that sometimes people won't hear us until they realize that uh, the message we proclaim actually has, has been so integrated into our lives, is so deeply personal to us that, that we actually value it to such a degree that we would bleed that we would expend our energy, that we would give ourselves in service to this message of the gospel. See, service to others requires self-sacrifice. It lays down its wants and desires to see Christ formed in others. But here's what happens this morning. See, our modern world has so valued the self, the self, the self-expression, selfishness, as, as it were, that true service is in disrepair. The question before us today is this, how do we serve others in a way that actually benefits them? How do we serve others as sinners saved by grace who still retain these aspects of the sinful nature? How do we serve others and leave our selfishness behind? This is where I think Paul wants to head this morning. He says this, we serve Christ by considering how Christ can be treasured in others. We put on that attitude of Christ-likeness in our service when we consider the other person and how they might be formed like Jesus himself. And this is the service that God wants us to put on. We're going to see this in two different servants this morning. First, Paul uh, kind of commends the life of Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And so he's saying, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And then secondly, he's going to show us the life of Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. So really what we have here this morning is Paul giving us two examples of Christ-like service set in front of us. So let's dig in this morning. See, first, Paul wants to send Timothy to Philippi in verses 19 through 24. Let's read this again. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. 
And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. See what Paul starts off with here in verse 19 is he says that he wants to be encouraged by the Philippians, right? He wants to send Timothy so that Timothy might eventually bring back a report of the Philippians' progress in the faith. Now, we might think this sounds really selfish of Paul, right? We might think, see, Paul's just self-interested here. But notice he does this thing for himself, but within it is bound up this, uh, he's, he's bound up in the betterment of the Philippians for the glory of Christ. Those two concerns are one and the same in Paul's thinking. So Paul is motivated both by his own joy and Christ's glory, and those two things are not in conflict in Paul's mind. So we see Paul's interest in the Philippians' well-being in verses 20 through 22. Look what he says. He says that Paul wants to encourage the Philippians also. Uh, He describes Timothy to these Philippians in verse 20. He says he has no one who's selfless like Timothy. And and Paul kind of spends some time developing this thought about who Timothy is and what it is for him to be selfless like this. He highlights that Timothy is unique in his concern for others. Look at verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for you, for your welfare. He describes uh, others in their self-interest by way of contrast in verse 21. He says, for they all seek their own interests. See, Timothy is unique in that he is genuinely concerned for others. And he stands in contrast to those other individuals who themselves would seek themselves in their service. The second thing that Paul highlights is that Timothy has this unique relationship to Paul. Paul describes that, that Timothy is like a son to him. Apparently, these, these Philippians knew Timothy. They knew about the history of his service with Paul, and, and Paul appeals to their knowledge. So Paul is sending his best. At great personal loss to himself, he's sending the best that he has to this Philippian church. But more importantly, Paul has this proven Uh, worth in his service. Verse 22, he says, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. In fact, Paul would write two letters to Timothy, wouldn't he? He would describe what it is to live in a pattern of service as he pastors these people at the church of Ephesus. And Paul has this kind of father-son relationship, and he's kind of spelling out what this would look like. And so he so trusted this brother that he now sends him to this church in Philippi that he loves so deeply. Notice, too, that what we've already said, that Paul sends his best. Paul doesn't send the JV. He doesn't send the young developing guy that's sometimes erratic. He sends the one that he trusts the most. We recognize as a planting church, a church that desires to plant someday, we might send out our best. We might send out those that we love the most, that we uh, feel are most necessary to our body in hopes that other people will be more established in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 23 and 24, he kind of shares his plans. Look at what he says. He says, I hope therefore to send him just as, as soon as I see how it will go with me. Hey, remember Paul said, he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. It's kind of up in the air, right? It's like the Seinfeld version of Paul, right? He's saying, I I don't know what's going to happen with me. So I'm going to see how it goes. I'm going to see what this next step looks like. But then I'm going to send Timothy to you. And then in verse 24, he, he says, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come to you as well. 
So Paul has these plans. He has this uh, plan to not only send Timothy, but also for himself to come and visit this church in Philippi. See, all of this, as we kind of take in the story of Timothy, it stands out that if we are to serve others, we must consider their best interest. If we're to give ourselves in service, we've got to consider what's best for another, specifically under the realm of God's glory in the gospel. See, Timothy was a qualified servant because he had concern for others. Paul has shown us that some poor servants in this letter, hasn't he? Remember back in chapter 1, where he described some of these people who uh, they, were, uh, they preached Christ from envy and rivalry in chapter 1, verse 15? And in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says that they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. And he's saying that these ministers of the gospel, as it were, were motivated by selfishness. But Timothy stands in contrast to these. He shows concern for others. In fact, if we were to kind of read all of chapter 2 in one sitting this morning, we would find the life of Timothy to be a mirror image of what Paul described in the earlier verses in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Look with me there for a second. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, what Paul is doing is he's setting a living, breathing example in the flesh before these brothers and sisters in Philippi. He's called them to a commandment, and now he's literally showing them a person who plays out that exact lifestyle. See, we recognize this morning that a self-interested servant is a contradiction of terms. You can't be both self-interested and truly serve. Let's just be honest for a second. Motivation is a really tricky thing, isn't it? I heard, uh, I remember talking to a pastor and he was describing someone who wanted to teach in his congregation And so this brother came to the pastor of his church and he said, I would love to teach Sunday school at some point. And so the pastor said to him, oh, that's great. We'll set you up with a children's class. He said, that's not quite what I was thinking, right? And he had this design that he was going to teach adults and Sunday school in this particular place. And and while the pastor tried to push him toward a a more rudimentary level of teaching, uh, he designed something different. And that pastor went on, and he told, told us of how he saw this individual uh, eventually kind of be given over to moral failure and other things. He had a character problem that desired glory and honor rather than service and Christ-likeness in the lives of others. See, there's a way to garner attention from acts that should be done in service. And in this way, the sinful heart can become quite confused It seeks glory where deference should be preferred. It it wants honor when Christ-honoring worship should be accomplished. See, this morning, only the servant can assess his motives. Only you or he or she knows what truly drives our desire. Some of us selfishly want glory through 
service. Still others, we want a, we want a quiet kind of a, a disquieted soul. We want to comfort ourselves through these acts of service to say, see, I'm really not that bad of a person. I'm doing these good things. Uh, we feel an inherent guilt over something that's happened in our past. And so we quickly swing in to help with someone. But really, we aren't motivated by concern for the other person or concern for the glory of Christ. We're more concerned about appeasing our own uh, kind of stirred up conscience. And this is most of our ministry, isn't it? To the impoverished, to others. We interact because we're motivated by guilt. See, the sinful heart can produce good actions for bad reasons. Have you ever thought about this? We can produce good actions for bad reasons. In fact, I wonder if this might describe a great deal of our, our modern-day religion. It might even describe some of us here this morning. We are motivated not out of concern for others, but by some internal itch that we feel we must be scratched and in this way, our service isn't about other people. It's not about the lordship of Jesus. It's about some need inside of us rather than meeting needs outside of ourselves. But like Paul, we stop and say, how do I determine my motivations? How do I get to the bottom of, of this sin-soaked heart? And how do I kind of clear the deck of all of that selfishness and sinfulness? Paul wants to lay another example in front of us, and, and the example of Epaphroditus. Verses 25 through 30, look with me there. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and to honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. See, Paul sends Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus is homesick. In verses 25 and 26, he describes that Epaphroditus uh, is, is longing to go home, longing to see uh, those friends and family that he had grown up with in this particular region, and so he's longing to see these individuals. And there's a distinction here to be made between Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy was yet to come to Philippi, but, but Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was, was the one who probably brought this letter to them. Also, Epaphroditus seems to have a, a history with these Philippian people. He was sent by this church in Philippi to minister to the needs of Paul, like verse 30 says. And Paul says it was necessary then to send Epaphroditus back to them. In verse 26, Paul tells us that Epaphroditus was distressed to see them. Why? Well, we start to get a picture of his story in verses 27 and 28. Paul tells Epaphroditus' story there. It would seem that he, Epaphroditus was uh, sent to serve Paul as the Philippians had sent him to do. But subsequently, Epaphroditus gets sick. And unfortunately, he recovers, but Epaphroditus couldn't just like pick up the phone and FaceTime his buddies back in Philippi, right? First of all, his, his name is five syllables long, so that's enough data to like swallow up everything, right? But we recognize that, that this chain of communication was a little bit broken at this time. And so his home church didn't know for themselves how Epaphroditus was doing. Uh, and so Paul sends Epaphroditus back home so that they can see him in the flesh. They can see that he's doing well. But Paul has some 
secondary purposes in this, or we might even say primary purposes. Paul thanks God for Epaphroditus' servant, our service and testimony in verses 29 and 30. See, Paul sends Epaphroditus for the purpose of joy, right? That's what he says. He says it twice in verses 28 and 29, that you may rejoice at seeing him again in verse 29. So you receive him, the Lord, with all joy. And so Paul is sending them back, sending Epaphroditus back so that the Philippians themselves might be uh, rejoicing at the work of Epaphroditus, their brother and their messenger in the Lord, right? And then secondly, Paul sends Epaphroditus for the purpose of honor in verse 29. So receive him, the Lord, with all joy and honor such men. See, Epaphroditus deserves honor as someone who nearly died for the work of Christ. That's the way Paul spells it out there in verse 30 uh, and verse 29. Honor such men. See, Epaphroditus was qualified for honor because of his track record of service. There's a lot of commonality here between Timothy and Epaphroditus, okay? Uh, Both are familiar, uh, either by a proven track record or by personal experience. Uh, They're familiar with the Philippians. Uh, Both Timothy and Epaphroditus have a proven track record of other-mindedness or or of service. Uh, Both are Paul's partners in the gospel. Both both of them, uh, you know, probably middle-aged guys, right? But what qualifies these two individuals for candidacy as servants is that they put on a self-sacrificial nature. Paul says in verse 20 that, that Timothy was genuinely concerned for others. In fact, look back, back with me at verse 20 and 21. Notice what he says here and the nuance of what Paul writes. He says, For I have no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. In fact, if we were to kind of read this in the original language, what it would actually read is, who would be genuinely concerned for you. That word welfare is actually supplied by the translators. And then when we turn it around in verse 21, we might read it this way, for they all seek themselves. They're not concerned for you. They seek themselves. And then he goes on in verse 21, and he says this, not those of Jesus Christ. See, what we have here is a binary distinction. There's just two options. There's the option of serving yourself, which is motivated by sinful flesh, which produces these kind of half-hearted acts of service to others. It's a, a, a minister who preaches the gospel from selfish ambition, and the product becomes envy and rivalry. But the second option is that we, through the submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, would actually take on interest to others. And notice the way Paul frames it here in verses 20 and 21 is that others interested is also Christ interested. That those two things are one in the same. That when we take on the forgiveness that's given to us in the Lordship of Jesus and our selfish, sinful nature is put to death, we now have opportunity to take on concern for others around us. This is what Paul is describing to us here in these verses. This is to say that because you are crucified with Christ, now you can be oriented around the needs of others around you. That you can genuinely become interested in their betterment in Christ. And by the way, this is also the design of Jesus. What 
Paul is essentially saying to us here is that when we take on the newness of Christ and the interest of Christ, we become more interested in others. We might stop and ask this question. If my new life in Christ caused me to take on the interest of Christ, what is the interest of Christ? Pretty simple question, right? See, the truth this morning is that Jesus self-sacrificed for the purpose of establishing his people. I want to stop and just consider some of the statements from the New Testament that Jesus gave us about his purpose in coming. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' stated purpose about his life is self-sacrifice for the establishment of others. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, as Jesus is speaking with this tax collector who's just uh, on the margins of society, Zacchaeus, he's there up in the tree, and when he calls him down, he concludes his interaction with Zacchaeus, and he says, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. My purpose is to come to seek that which has been lost and to bring restoration and renewal. In Matthew 15, Jesus describes his interaction with the Israelites, and he says, the Son of Man has come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's come and he's seeking that which was lost. We have these parables in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus talks about things that are lost, the lost coin where the, the person sweeps the house, but when he finds that lost coin, they rejoice. When they find the lost sheep, they rejoice. When they find the lost son, the prodigal, the father throws a party. See, Jesus himself came to bring restoration. He emphasized his self-sacrifice for the establishment of his people. His purpose in coming was the purpose of redeeming people, to buy them back from their sinful rebellion, to give them the abundant life which he possessed in himself. See, he has accomplished through his own self-giving our redemption. He has bought us back from our sinfulness. But here's our temptation this morning. Our temptation this morning is to speak of the freedom that we have in Christ as a freedom from something, not to something. Say, Jason, you're going to have to explain that. That's the most confusing statement you've ever made in your life. The way we speak about the gospel is we talk about our freedom from things like the sinful nature, which is true. But there's also an aspect of the New Testament that calls us to be free to serve something, to serve someone in particular. Consider Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 reads like this, and it's on the screen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see what's happening here? There's the concepts of freedom and service. Paul lays out for us that we shouldn't just use our newfound freedom in Christ to say, I'm free from all of these things. We should say, I am free to do the following things. I am free to serve others in Jesus Christ. 
I'm not just free from all the sins that marked me before. That's certainly true. I am free now to put away those desires, to put away those passions that drove me, and to bind myself to others as I am bound to Christ. There are other ways that that the New Testament calls us to a life of patterns of service, where Jesus speaks about how we become servants after our redemption in Christ. We all love Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. You're God's ox. Say that to your wife sometime. That'll go well, right? You are God's ox. We are the ox for Jesus' harvesting work in this world, aren't we? Romans 6, 18 tells us that we are slaves to righteousness. It starts off in Romans 6 to say, you're no longer slaves to sin in Romans 6, 7. And then Paul kind of works it out. And then he says, now you're slaves to righteousness. You're no longer bound to the sinful nature, but now you're given to righteousness. So you better put on these works of righteousness to show yourself redeemed in Christ. So we, we put on the yoke. We consider ourselves slaves to righteousness. We just saw this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, slaves of God. See, it's no longer sufficient just to talk about all of the freedom from the sinful acts that I had, freedom to uh, be done with all of these things. Now we must talk about ourselves as free to serve. And when you were redeemed, you weren't redeemed to just do what you wanted. You were redeemed to serve the living, holy God of the universe. You were redeemed to serve one another in the body of Christ, to see Jesus formed in them as Jesus is formed in you. See, the upshot is this. The freedom we have in Christ is a freedom to put me to death. It's a freedom to live God's purpose in this world because our old self has been crucified with Christ and no longer lives. Our freedom in Christ is a freedom to service to others. So we step away and say, what's that mean? What's that mean for us on a Monday or Sunday afternoon? Here's my encouragement for us this morning. Christian, let your service to others have its aim in Christ-likeness in others. Let your service to others have its aim at Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness in you and Christ-likeness in the people that you serve. Let's start with the first one of those, Christ-likeness in you. How do we become Timothy's and Epaphroditus's? Notice what the text draws us to. We treasure what Jesus treasures. Verses 20 and 21. We have the interests of Christ. Of Christ. There's one. One Christ. Not only that, we 
give others preference. In verse 20, we, we consider what they themselves want. Verse 21, we, we try as much as possible to leave behind our self-interest. And then finally, we set no limits to our service so that we might be like Epaphroditus, even serving to the point of death. We don't set limits on our service other than what God has laid upon us. Now, we want to qualify that for just a second. We set no limits to our service. Epaphroditus gave himself even to the point of death. And that way, he even fulfills a little bit of what we talked about earlier in chapter 2, where Jesus himself served even to the point of death, death on a cross. But our service does have limits, doesn't it? And it limits itself to the end that we have other responsibilities in Christ. Our, ta- our service takes on the limits of our other responsibilities that God has laid upon us. Let me just give an example uh, We give of our finances, but we retain what's necessary for us to pay the bills that we owe. We we give of our time, but we keep dinner with our family. We give of our energy, but we retain the energy that it takes to be a father and a husband Someone once said to me, they pulled me aside early in ministry, and they said, you know what, you can't be a good pastor if you're not a good dad. And it's true. Even as you look at 1 Timothy 3, it says that I would lead my household well. That's one of the requirements for me to be able to be a pastor. See, you cannot be a good servant who sees Christ formed in others when you haven't seen to the responsibilities that God has entrusted to you. So there's a caveat to be made here. It's not just this endless self-giving. It's, it's sometimes, sometimes it's the best thing I can do to serve others is take a nap. Something, some of you, that's scandalous to you in your mind, that we would take a nap. I take a nap like every Sunday afternoon. You guys exhaust me on Sunday mornings. Sometimes the best thing you can do is take a vacation with your family. Sometimes the best thing you can do is go out to dinner with your spouse. See, sometimes we have to consider that that we're just limited people, that we're not the Savior. We're not the Messiah who's come to save everyone else around us. We have to recognize that I am an embodied person who needs eight hours of sleep and three, maybe five square meals a day. We have to recognize that we're limited, but we're also set free to serve. There's a tension to be had between those two things. Here's another thing we do. We, we tend to reciprocate acts of service. We do this around Christmas. The holidays are coming up, right? And so somebody bought you a $25 gift card last year, and so you better buy just a $25 gift card this year for them, right? You return reciprocal acts of service. It really messes things up when someone gets thoughtful and intentional about their gift giving because then you don't know what to do. So everybody just keep the system up and just buy gift cards, right? Oh, we, we reciprocate. Someone bought a meal for me when I was sick. I'm going to buy a meal for them. Someone served me in this capacity. I'm going to serve them. What if our acts and patterns of service weren't in consideration of horizontal responsibilities? What if our acts of service were vertical and our responsibilities toward a God who's redeemed us for his purpose? So that's what 
we might encourage in ourselves the attitudes that we take on in our service to others? What would we look like? Let's talk about how we seek Christ's likeness in others. See, when serving others, we want to see Jesus Christ formed in them. That's our primary goal, isn't it? And we might set aside some of those secondary goals. We don't want just to see someone get through the difficulties at work. We don't just want to see someone feel better. We don't just want to see someone help through a relational difficulty. Because at the end of the day, all of these things are subject to return. Disease returns, relational difficulty, problems at work. Those things will come and go as life continues to be lived. But what we want to see is a deeper treasuring of Jesus Christ in the midst of those things. See, when we help others treasure Jesus, all of life's difficulties take on their proper weight and importance. Disease is a temporary setback. Our work is meant to glorify God. Our relationships take on a gospel-rooted importance. And so what we want to see is not just the alleviating of these circumstances. What we want to see is the treasuring of Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances. Maybe we put on acts of service that don't just bring a meal. It's a meal plus a card to thank them, to honor Christ, to say how you're praying for them. Maybe you don't just um, serve on a music team, but you prayerfully consider the songs before you come, and you prayerfully consider those that might be encouraged by the words that we sing. Maybe it's uh, an act of just selfless service where we might go and mow someone's lawn or cut their grass, and it's that they might take that extra hour or hour and a half or however long it takes you to mow, that they might take that time to pray, to study, to think. What if we put on those types of service in relation to one another? You know, as an aside, this is why we do Orphan Sunday. Parenting calls for consistent self-sacrificing, doesn't it? Every parent should be nodding right now. Foster care and adoption are tough at times. They invite us to a self-sacrifice that's incredibly difficult. But the aim of orphan care ministries is Christ-likeness. It's not to keep kids off of the streets. It's not to provide barren mothers with children or aim for foster care and adoption ministry or our aim for Excuse me. Our aim for foster care and adoption ministry should be to see Christ formed in others, particularly as it relates to orphans, the least of these in our midst. It's a self-sacrifice to take another child into your home. It is uh, particularly like Christ that we would see the formation of Jesus in others around us, right? These individuals might never have someone that they call dad or mom. Some of them will. They'll have biological parents that are involved, but many will not. And we step in for the purpose of seeing a spiritual parenthood, a spiritual Christ-likeness that shows these orphans what it is to follow after Jesus. Doesn't that fulfill what we've been talking about here in Philippians chapter 2? We can do that as 
biological parents, as you uh, seek to see Christ formed in your children. You can do that as a boss or as an employee. You can live all of this in all of your contexts of life to put on an attitude of service that is divinely wrought by God himself, established through the work of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to pray for that. I want to also pray for our meal. I'm going to hang out and eat soup, so you should hang out with us. But I specifically want to pray that God allows us a pattern of service that is honoring to Christ, that sees Christ formed in others and sees Christ formed in ourselves. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would accomplish that. That you would make us servants. Servants who are oriented to our toward the grace of God that's given to us, servants that, that invite others to consider your grace and your mercy. Or give us a heart to so desire to see Jesus honored in our midst. That's why we serve. We don't serve to build up ourselves. We don't serve to bring glory to, to us but instead we serve to honor the name of Jesus, the true servant. Pray now that you would bless our food and bless our meal together. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.